From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Chest surgery, also known as thoracic surgery, used to always involve cracking open the chest in order to access the organs. But advances in techniques, including minimally invasive procedures and the use of 3D models, are improving the way chest surgery is done. On today's program, we'll learn more from a Mayo Clinic expert. So we've actually invented brand new surgical procedures because we've been able to have time to think about the model, look at the model, practice angles, look at different techniques and approaches. Also on the program, treatment for head and neck cancer. And non-hormonal treatments for menopause symptoms. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. In minimally invasive surgery, doctors use a variety of techniques to operate with less damage to the body than with open surgery. Now, in general, minimally invasive surgery is associated with less pain, good, shorter hospital stay, very good, and most important, fewer complications. Yes, here to talk about minimally invasive chest surgery and using 3D printing for complex chest procedures is Mayo Clinic thoracic surgeon. That's chest surgeon. That's right. Good, you said it perfectly, <laughs> Dr. Shane. Amanda Blackman, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much. It's great to be back. Dr. Blackman, nice to have you. So let's talk about minimally invasive surgery as it relates to the chest. What does that mean? Traditionally, when we do chest surgery and when I trained to do chest surgery as a resident, we would make an incision on the back underneath your shoulder blade or in the front of the chest, and we would cut all of the muscle on the way in. Usually the muscle is called the serratus muscle or the latissimus muscle. For those of you that are professional swimmers, those are the muscles you use to do the butterfly. And then we would put a crank in between the ribs and slowly turn the crank and spread the ribs, cutting all the muscle. Are you going to <laughs> so, so as you can imagine, that generated quite a bit of pain. Cracking uh, the chest. The, yes. So the, the crank compresses the nerve, which sits right underneath that rib. And whenever you put some kind of pressure in between there, it results in significant pain and something that we call post-thoracotomy pain syndrome. So we thought about how we could possibly make it less painful. And I flew all over the country and started trying to learn these techniques from other surgeons that were pioneering that field and brought them back and and practiced and worked hard to try to find a way to make it less painful for patients. And so now we can do almost every surgery we do today with one, two, or three tiny little ports the size of my finger going into the chest with instruments. And then we just make one little incision underneath the, the ribs where we can slide a tumor out that might be big so we don't have to spread the ribs to take these large tumors out. And and it's much less painful. And how do you see what you're doing? We put a camera inside the chest and we put a breathing tube in, just like we do for open surgery, that allows us to collapse one lung and ventilate the other lung. And so you collapse the lung that you're operating on? Correct. And uh, what are you taking out most often? Usually a tumor in the lung or a tumor in the front of the chest called like a thymic tumor. Sometimes we'll take out tumors from the esophagus that way. If you have to pull this tumor out between the ribs, it can't be a very big tumor, can it? 
Well, the lung is very squishy. And once you get the air out of it, it can usually come out of a small three centimeter incision without a lot of rib spreading. So we can get a whole lobe out from that space. But if it's a big lobe or a big tumor, that's when we make these small accessory incisions underneath the ribs in what we call the subxiphoid space to pull them out so we don't have to spread the ribs. And xiphoid is the bottom of your breastbone. The bottom of your breastbone. So it comes out kind of underneath that space. This whole conversation, (laughs) the last three minutes, has made me very uncomfortable. Are you a little queasy? Well, it's just a lot. I mean, pulling the ribs open and yeah. on your uh, spine, that has to be terrible. Yeah. And now I just can't imagine the difference that it must make for the recovery of the patients to not yeah. have to endure that. Yeah, it's it's amazing. You can almost go on rounds the next day and identify who had an open chest surgery and who had minimally invasive surgery without examining anyone's chest. Most of the patients that have these kinds of surgeries go home in one or two days, sometimes three days, depending on the big size of the surgery. That What's done on the inside is the same. It's just what's done on the way in that's different. Okay, so it takes a couple of days if you have this minimally invasive surgery. What is the recovery if you do not? Usually a week. Oof. Yeah. But isn't it good there's such a thing as general anesthesia, Tracy? It sure yeah. is. The patients are asleep when you <laughs> well, I, but that's, funny I mean, you that's a lot up. to recover from. Yeah, so there are some places in China and in um, other parts outside the United States where they're doing this surgery on patients when they're spontaneously breathing without a breathing tube in and sometimes just under monitored anesthesia. Now, we aren't quite that brave. I think if we had an emergency, it would be really hard to get you know the patient uh, fully asleep with a breathing tube in. But there are some really brave patients volunteering for that kind of surgery. So is this surgery called VATS, video-assisted thoracoscopic surgery? Correct. And now the same approach can be used for robotic surgery. Um, robot versus thoracoscopic or inside the chest with a camera, that's for both VATS and robot. A patient would wake up and wouldn't know the difference of whether or not they had a robot surgery or a camera surgery, a thoracoscopic surgery. The only difference is in the instrumentation. Um, the port size is pretty much the same. With a robot, sometimes you end up with more ports than a regular minimally invasive chest surgery. But the real benefits are, you know, that you have less pain, typically less blood loss, easier breathing because your chest wall isn't hurting, so maybe slightly less pneumonia. And a really interesting study that was published out of Duke showed that patients actually made it to their chemotherapy quicker and more often because they weren't debilitated from the surgery. And there are even some long-term studies that are coming out that are saying there might be a survival advantage because of the inflammation that comes from having a big chest surgery versus a less invasive chest surgery. So is it true uh, that when you're doing the VAT surgery, you're right there next to the patient, but when you're doing robotic surgery, you're over at a console controlling the instruments? Yeah, you could be in a different hospital, but most of us couldn't tolerate that. (laughs) Now, you talked about pneumonia so I, as a complication, and I'm sure there are complications, even with VAT surgery, minimally invasive surgery, robotic surgery. What are some other complications that you've seen? Well, you can have a thoracic duct, which drains the fat from the belly up into the chest, leak, and it has a milky substance that leaks into the chest. You can have 
air leaking from the lung, which is the most common complication that we see. You can have pain from any kind of surgery. So just because it's minimally invasive doesn't mean that you won't have pain from it. And then you could have bleeding. Because there's small holes, I think there's a lower chance of bleeding. But if the work on the inside is the same, you can bleed from that area as well. So those are most of the complications that we see. To go back to the comparing of the two, it would seem to me that opening the chest would make it easier for the surgeon to do whatever you have to do in that surgery. Is it is it harder to do a minimally, minimally invasive surgery? So I, have you heard of the law of energy? It's neither created nor destroyed. So okay. in surgery, we have the law of pain. Uh, the pain amount stays the same. For open surgery, the pain is on the patient. And for minimally invasive surgery, the pain is on the surgeon. <laughs> so, so it is harder. Mm-hmm. It, it's sometimes the technical parts of doing the surgery are more difficult. And that's why we think robotic surgery might be helpful sometimes for surgeons that had a really hard time learning how to do it minimally invasively. The robot sometimes helps people who weren't very good with VATS become better with minimally invasive surgery because it's more like open surgery. So uh, were you able to practice in the cadaver lab or how did you learn how to do it? So uh, there's a woman who's very uh, key to teaching VAT surgery named Sherry Meyerson who developed a model and then we 3D printed a chest wall cage and we created this model where you could go in and and practice as many times as you want Um, and you would have an artificial lung that you would operate on or a lung that's much like the one in a human that you would operate on and you would practice doing these procedures and I used to teach these courses all the time. Now it's part of our curriculum. So most thoracic surgeons who are coming out of training, it's part of their required training. And so we don't have to teach so many classes anymore because most people now know how to do this. How long do the procedures take? Does the VATS procedure take longer than an open procedure or are they about the same? I think it's about the same, maybe even quicker, because you don't have to sew the chest back together. Yeah. Well, the resident does that anyway, don't they? Oh, Oh, no. Not in my room. (laughs) Uh, So you mentioned the fact that you can remove uh, tumors from the lung. What else can you do with VAT surgery, minimally invasive surgery, in the chest? So you can cut the, the sympathetic chain. So if somebody has sweaty palms, we call that hyperhidrosis. You can cut that and get rid of the sweaty palms or sweaty armpits. Um, You can take out tumors from the lung. You can take out tumors from the front of the chest. There's a a surgeon named Don Jaruszewski who practices at Mayo Clinic in Arizona who does a minimally invasive approach to fix the pectus deformity where the chest caves in. The breastbone is caved in. The Mm -hmm. breastbone is caved in, and she can pull it back out and make it look like a normal chest. She's really like the world's expert in that area. Wow. Um, we can take out and rebuild parts of the esophagus. We can we can do pretty much anything inside. We can even take a clip off the left atrium of the heart if someone has a big left atrium and atrial fibrillation to keep them from developing a clot in that part of the heart. Pretty amazing, huh? Minimal yeah. invasive chest surgery. We're talking with chest surgeon Dr. Shanda Blackman. We'll take a short break. When we come back, We're going to learn about using 3D printing to help with complex chest surgeries. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. (music) 
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with chest surgeon Dr. Shanda Blackman. We've learned about minimally invasive chest surgery. And now we want to ask Dr. Blackman about 3D printing, what it is and how you're able to use it for complex procedures. So 3D printing is a fascinating new concept in surgery and medicine, but it's really an old concept that's been out for a long time. 3D printing is basically where you use some type of anatomic model, a three-dimensional model that's created on the computer. And then you use these things like little tiny triangles that come up together to create a particular type of file called an STL file that's exported from the computer to a printer. And it's just like a laser jet printer. It lays down a layer, and then depending on the type of printer, that layer becomes a solid piece There are support structures and there are printed structures that will be the model that get printed. And then the next layer goes on top and then the next layer goes on top until you have this sort of building type structure. And then you put it in a washing machine that washes off the support material and you end up with this model. It can either be made of solid plastic. It can be made out of titanium if you have enough money to buy a titanium printer. (laughs) Um, It can be made out of some type of a solidified powder or some type of, you know, clear plastic thing. And you can print soft things and you can print hard things. So you can imagine the, the possibilities are limitless. So you actually have a model of the patient you're going to operate on with the abnormality included. Yeah, and and the great thing about it is it's printed life-size, so you can practice the surgery the day before you do it. Most of our surgeons that use 3D printing ask for the model several days in advance so that we can show it to the patient, educate the patient. I mean, patients look at a CAT scan, and their their head just starts swimming. They don't know how to read a CAT sure. scan, and mm-hmm. we're trying to point things out that look very clear to us because yeah. we've been looking at CAT scans it's our whole lives. It's hard to see the 3D aspect of that. Right, right. And your brain is meant to interpret 3D images. So when you show a patient a 3D model of whatever is wrong with them, they immediately understand it, and they start to comprehend how you're going to fix them and what you're going to do, and it all starts to make sense. So it makes our job easier, especially when someone doesn't have normal anatomy. So if you're born with a, some kind of thing that's different from the normal body, it helps the surgeon because your body is different from the average human. And we need to know how are we going to approach it differently based on that new thing. Either a prior surgery made you different or you were born to have a slightly different anatomic part of your body. So it helps us to get a leg up and familiarize ourselves before the case. How do you decide if you if you want a 3D printing of, of a patient? Obviously, you can't do it on every patient and don't need to. Yeah. So the way that I decide is if I have more than two surgeon groups in the operating room, communication has to be perfect. Planning has to be perfect. It's usually a complex case if we've got two teams coming in. So if I have a neurosurgeon coming in or if I have an orthopedic surgeon coming in or another vascular surgeon coming in and we're all working together, that 3D model helps us to understand and plan. All right, I'm going to go here and then you're going to go there and then we're going to work together in this area. This part we're going to have to take out and rebuild. This part, it's just like having a model of a car you're going to take apart and rebuild the day before you take apart and rebuild it. It's practice. It's like cheating. (laughs) For the patient's perspective, you know, practice makes perfect. I'm sure for some of these you could practice 
a multiple times. Yeah, you can. And the thing that I've noticed is with 3D printing, initially I was a bit of a skeptic and I thought, well, is this really going to be practice changing? I'm not really sure. But once we started 3D printing some of our superior sulcus tumors, I thought, well, I do minimally invasive surgery for regular lung tumors. Why couldn't we do it for this? So we've actually invented brand new surgical procedures because we've been able to have time to think about the model, look at the model, practice angles, look at different techniques and approaches, and be a little bit more uh, thoughtful about the way that we minimize the impact on the patient, minimize the incisions. So now we do minimally invasive Pancoast tumor resection sometimes. Pancoast meaning a tumor. Is the tumor at the top of the chest. We had a patient that had had a lot of prior surgery before he came here. They had taken out most of the ribs in his left chest and his um, arteries were rearranged inside his chest. He was a very complex patient. We basically wanted to take out part of his esophagus because it was leaking inside his chest. We went into the stomach through his feeding tube backwards, upside down, into the esophagus, and remove the esophagus backwards and upside down, inside out. You know, you (laughs) should understand that. I did. Well, you said earlier um, that, you know, the human brain is meant to understand 3D. It would make sense then that it has transformed your practice, because if you can look at a 3D model, it would help you figure out and invent new ways to help in your surgical practice. Yeah. So I think, you know, 3D modeling helps with patient education. It helps with coming up with novel approaches to a tumor that might be more complex and not something commonly done. It helps with taking care of patients who've had a lot of prior surgery, and it helps the surgeons to innovate. So do you actually take this model into the room with the patient and say, here you are, and here's your tumor, and here's what we're going to do? Yes, and the patient tries to tuck it into their purse and take it home with them. They love these models. They want to keep them. (laughs) Paperweight, the coolest paperweight ever. So what's the biggest tumor you and your colleagues have removed from the chest or the chest wall? Well, that would probably be a 8 to 10 pound synovial sarcoma that we removed from a young woman who had a, a novel treatment here at Mayo Clinic a couple of years ago. She was a very young woman and we came up with a multi-team approach. It was a, a large tumor about the weight and size of a small baby inside her left chest. And ironically, that same patient got married on the steps of Plummer. Oh, awesome. But you guys got it out. Yeah, of course we got it out. And then she got married. (laughs) Of course. Uh, Chest surgeon, Dr. Shanda Blackman, minimally invasive chest surgery. It causes less damage to normal tissues, less pain, a shorter hospital stay, and less complications. And we have just learned about life-size 3D printed models, which are a huge help to surgeons in doing complex chest procedures. Amazing. Pretty amazing. Dr. Shanda Blackman, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, treatment options for head and neck cancer. And non-hormonal treatments for menopause symptoms. Coming up, a health minute with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. How do red and white meats fit into a heart-healthy diet? An internet search of the topic brings up many different articles, some of which offer conflicting recommendations. 
Dr. Donald Hendrew, director of the Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program, explains whether you should opt for a steak or a piece of chicken when eating for heart health. He says what we need to do is not look at the latest studies and throw away 20 years of research. We need to put the later studies in context with what we've known for many years and put it in the big picture. Dr. Hensrud says the saturated fat content in meat is one of the issues because saturated fat is the main determinant of low-density lipoprotein, or LDL cholesterol. Now, that's the bad cholesterol, a risk factor for heart disease. He says saturated fat is usually higher in red meat than poultry and white meat. Plus, Dr. Hensrud says there's a chemical in red meat that's converted to a substance that may increase risk of heart disease. And many studies have shown that red meat, and especially processed meat, increases the risk of heart disease more than white meat. So, in practice, Dr. Hensrud thinks it's still good to A, choose plant proteins, B, choose lean meats, whether they're white or red, and C, if given a choice, choose white meat over red meat. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, there is a growing epidemic of cancer of the back of the throat, also called the oropharynx. It's being caused by the human papillomavirus, or HPV. HPV infection is a viral infection that commonly causes warts. There are more than 100 varieties of human papillomavirus, most HPV viruses don't cause cancer, but some types of genital HPV can cause cancer in multiple locations, including the cervix, the genital, the genital area in both men and women, and in the back of the throat. And here to discuss HPV-related cancer of the throat is Mayo Clinic ear, nose, and throat surgeon, Dr. Eric Moore. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Moore. Thanks very much for having me on. It's a pleasure. Dr. Moore, good to have you. Uh, human papillomavirus, I guess uh, causing warts is one thing, but causing cancer quite a another. Right. So we used to see a type of cancer in the head and neck that was a malignant cancer, potentially had a very bad prognosis, but behaved a little bit differently than the typical cancers that we saw from tobacco and alcohol, which are the common most what most people recognize as the most common causes of head and neck cancer. You would see sort of little warty papillary growths around these tumors. And after further testing and eventual studies of these tumors, we found that these were tumors very similar to cervical cancer in women that were caused by human papilloma high-risk viruses, but occurring in the tonsil and back of the throat and the tongue. Has this changed or increased in incidence? It's rapidly growing. So it's the most commonly increasing in incidence cancer in the body. And there's multiple speculations on why that's so. People are not sure if the virus morphed or sexual practices transformed to allow more people to have this in the back of their throat, but it's a commonly still increasing cause of cancer. And who's at increased risk? Men and women. Uh, there's a bimodal age distribution. So men and women in their 30s to 50s, and then another high incidence in men and women in their 60s to 70s. More common in women, but both men and women. More common in people with multiple sexual partners. There's more common in people with high-risk sexual behavior, but we often see it in people who don't really fit that mold either. And you said relatively young age group. And to you, when you look in the throat, it almost looks like warts? Yes, it has a very characteristic appearance where it'll look abnormal, it's ulcerated, it looks like something that doesn't belong there, but it'll often have a papillary, which is the word most people use to describe warty kind of projections around it. And do people come in to you because they have a sore throat? No, 
They come in because they have spread of the disease to lymph nodes in the neck. So most people don't have a lot of sore throat symptoms, a lot of bleeding until it gets very large or very advanced, but it commonly and quickly spreads to lymph nodes in the neck. So most people come in because they have a lump just below their jawline in the upper neck. Is You said the age group is 30 to 50, and then there's younger. What about the HPV vaccine? So the HPV vaccine is the one surefire way that we think will drop that incidence in the future. There's a long latency period between exposure, infection, chronic infection to cancer. So that might be two decades and more of latency period. But the incidence of the viral transmission is also still going up. And the vaccine is very effective in most of the studies at preventing the chronic long-term infection that leads to cancer. Used to be that the vaccine was first only really recommended to young women. It then was expanded to both boys and girls in the adolescent age group. And most recently, the vaccine age group has escalated all the way up to 45 years of age with the knowledge that if you get the vaccine before you've been exposed to the virus, that it will possibly have very long-term preventative effects. Getting people to change their sexual habits is maybe a little bit more difficult. How how can you go about prevention and in that message for people who are listening? I think just a good thorough discussion with people, good thorough discussion with your children, good thorough discussion with your patients as a pediatrician, having, you know, your eyes wide open and knowing what you're at risk for and how to prevent those infections is a good place to start. All right. So you said the main symptoms of swelling, a lumping in the neck. Any other symptoms? Sometimes chronic sore throat on one side or the other. There's another interesting site predilection. So the tumor doesn't occur in the lips or the oral tongue or the gum line because that has a very plate-like armored surface that prevents entrance of the the virus Virus. into that Mm. tissue. But there's reticulated or, or perforated tissue in the tonsil and there's tonsil on the very back of the tongue, deep in the throat. So some people just have this odd sensation of a foreign body feeling, a lump in the throat that just doesn't go away. I recently saw a gentleman who had a big lump in the back of his tongue and his throat that he had for a year, but didn't think much of it because he felt otherwise well. So you said that most people don't come in with a sore throat. They come in with lumps in their neck because the tumor has spread to the lymph nodes in the neck. But if someone had this cancer and looked in the mirror carefully, would they be able to see something or is it something only you can see by in their mouth exa- yeah in their mouth Could occasionally they see some people will get a flashlight and look back at their tonsils which are in the very back of the throat on the sides of the mouth and say oh one's larger than another that doesn't look normal that's not common most people just feel something back there but have a hard time seeing it and the back of the tongue is almost impossible for a person to see themselves the dentist looks for it when he does his exam and feels for it which is really important so a lot of times these tumors are underneath the surface of the skin so there's not much to look at but you can feel it like a hard acorn beneath the surface of the skin of the throat and a lot of times when you go to a dentist and your dentist does a really good oral exam he'll put a glove on and put his fingers in your mouth and feel the back of the tongue and floor of the mouth and that's a good way to diagnose it also so how do you treat it it's surprisingly highly treatable and this is what's the most exciting thing for us as physicians is it's a tumor that can cause bad problems, even death left untreated, but is highly susceptible to treatment. 
There's a lot of immune-related factors to that. So we think the body's immune system is very effective against HPV-related cancers for various reasons. And so if we can get the process started by stimulating a strong immune response, the body can sometimes take over. So we've started to cone down a whole lot of our treatments. Our treatments in head and neck cancer are very heavy-handed. They cause a lot of long-term side effects of scarring and fibrosis and dry mouth and all these things that can bother people for life. And because this tumor is so well-treated, we've started to de-escalate or drop off a lot of severity of our treatment, leading to pretty high cure rates, but then better quality of life long-term. Does that mean that you can uh, usually cure these with surgery alone or surgery and radiation and not use chemotherapy? We try to individualize and use all those tools in our tool bag for the right tumor for the right patient. And this is multidisciplinary treatment. And our multidisciplinary treatment most often starts out with transoral surgical removal. We can remove the tumor through the mouth with minimally invasive instruments that don't leave a lot of long-term side effect or healing problems. So we use transoral robotic surgery to remove the primary tumor and sometimes the lymph nodes in the neck. And then if the patient has ominous prognostic factors like tumor creeping along nerves or spreading outside the capsule of the lymph nodes will then add a limited, very focused and targeted radiotherapy and sometimes a radiosynthesizing chemotherapy drug that's not as toxic as typical chemotherapy. And that treatment de-escalation protocol of using those things sparingly, but all of them has led to much fewer side effects than laying out a whole lot of one or the other. And prognosis? Is excellent. More so, than 95% of these tumors are cured with early detection and treatment. And you actually have an oropharynx cancer clinic where all you physicians get together as a team to treat these patients. Yeah, we think that the patient coming in and seeing all these providers up front, everybody collaborating, everybody giving their input is the best way to treat a patient and individualize that care to the patient. All right, well, there is an epidemic of throat cancer caused by the human papillomavirus. The prognosis, fortunately, is excellent. All right, even better, I guess, is uh, prevention, the HPV vaccine for young individuals, even up to the age of 45. That's correct. Prevention is key. Our thanks, Dr. Eric Moore, ear, nose, and throat surgeon, Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for letting me share a message. I appreciate it. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Menopause is a normal stage of life. According to the National Institute of Aging, natural menopause occurs between 45 and 55 years of an age and lasts for about seven years. But it can continue for up to 14 years, maybe even longer. As many as 75% of menopausal women experience hot flashes and night sweats. It's a lovely story. <laughs> I'm so happy to be part of the telling of it. According to some estimates, the hot flashes last for an average of just over five years. And the earlier in life they occur, the longer they may last. How can you get relief from hot flashes? We're about to find out. Joining us by phone is Dr. Jewel Kling of the Division of Women's Health at Mayo Clinic's Arizona campus. Hello, Dr. Kling. It's nice to meet you. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Dr. Kling, it sounds like most women do experience some kind of symptoms during menopause. Absolutely, that is the case. Um, As you had already said, most women will experience hot flashes and night sweats, um, but there are a lot of other common symptoms like sleep problems, mood changes, weight gain, and vaginal dryness. Are there any women who go through menopause who don't have some symptoms? Yeah, there are are, uh, symptoms. 
certain amount of women that kind of glide through it and may not experience some of those symptoms. Um, although it may also be that some women aren't aware of the type of symptoms that go along with menopause. So probably a majority of women will have some of the vaginal changes related to menopause that may occur about two to three years after they're technically menopausal. But for some, it may not bother them. Do these symptoms, I mean, they're certainly bothersome and... I don't know, we want to joke about them because some, there's nothing we can do about it. It makes us feel a little better to joke about it. But are these serious for changing uh, the, uh, your overall health? That's an excellent question. And the more kind of research that comes out, we are finding that hot flashes, which we call vasomotor symptoms, may predict uh, other risks like risks of cardiovascular disease or heart disease. So there may be some good reason for us to think about treating them to prevent potentially those risks. Now, wait a minute. Say that again. Are, are you saying that if a woman has hot flashes, they can lead to other health problems? Well, it may not necessarily be that they can lead to them, but they may be a sign of um, something underlying. Um, so there is some studies that are looking at um, hot flashes as a risk factor for heart disease. Um, there was even just one that came out that looked at women um, in the Women's Health Initiative, a big study from the 1990s and early 2000s that found that women with hot flashes had higher risk of breast cancer. So there may be some something underlying going on there. So interesting to just even think about what the co- some of those correlations might be. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so much more that we really need to, to understand. But at, at the end of the day, if a woman's having significant symptoms that are impacting her quality of life, I think that's really the biggest reason she should and her doctor should think about treating them. Preach. Yeah. <laughs> It seems logical that because I'm presuming that these symptoms are due to the lack of of hormones because the ovaries stop working. It seems reasonable uh, that the treatment would be to give the woman hormones if she's having symptoms. Um, Absolutely. The most effective treatment for the hot flashes and night sweats associated with menopause is hormone therapy. Um, But for some women, uh, they can't take hormones because they have contraindications. Um, meaning they either have had a blood clot or have had a breast cancer um, or some women choose not to use hormones. Um, But the good news is at this point we know a lot of different therapies that can help treat their symptoms. Such as? Yeah, um, there's the (laughs) one uh, FDA-approved medication um, is paroxetine, which is also called um, Paxil when we use it for anxiety and depression. But for menopause, um, it's a lower dose. It's Uh, 7.5 milligrams. Um, It can help significantly with hot flashes, night sweats, and sometimes women notice things like mood stability and sleeping better. So it it not only helps with the depression symptoms, but it helps with night sweats and hot flashes? Absolutely. And and when it's uh, prescribed specifically for hot flashes, that's the main reason we're using it. But uh, as you're suggesting, these type of medications are used for depression, so it can help with some of the mood um, occurrences that happen during menopause, too. And what was the name of the drug again? It's called paroxetine. That's the generic name. And then when it's used for menopause, it's called Brisdel. It's 7.5 milligrams, so a much lower dose than we would typically use if we are treating anxiety or depression. And actually, the same stands for a lot of the other um, antidepressants, uh, what we call the SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or another class of medications that are similar. And although they're not FDA approved for hot flashes and night sweats, there's 
plenty of studies that have shown that they're effective at treating hot flashes and night sweats. So women may talk to their doctor about things like escitalopram, also known as Lexapro, or venlafaxine, which is the same as um, Effexor, uh, to help with hot flashes and night sweats. We should also just say that, I mean, I know we're talking about hot flashes, but the the mood uh, changes that people can go through when they go through their menopausal stages is not something to be taken lightly either. Some women. Yeah, no, a- absolutely. Um, and that may be a reflection of the, the changing hormones, you know, the loss of the estrogen and progestin, but could also be a reflection of all the other symptoms. Like if you're having flushes all night and you're not sleeping, then of course you're going to be fatigued and your mood's impacted. So it's, it kind of all works together. And if we can treat that, that core issue, then women are going to feel better overall. What, what about some non-medication options? Uh, that's a great question. And there's some uh, good uh, research that supports the use of things like cognitive behavioral therapy, um, which is like talk therapy, usually with somebody that's trained to do it for hot flashes and night sweats. Um, as well as clinical hypnosis that can be helpful for reducing hot flashes and night sweats. Really? Hypnosis? Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what about, are there any herbs or supplements that uh, you have found or are there scientific evidence to suggest that they would work? Well, many of the different supplements that are marketed have been looked at in studies, um, but what has been found um, really overall is that none of them are more effective than placebo at lowering hot flashes and night sweats. And what, what that means is that if women take them, they may notice a reduction in their symptoms, but it would be the same if they were taking a sugar pill. Um, and so I usually share that with my patients and say, let's, it, you know, if you're having significant symptoms, let's focus on something that we know is going to treat those hot flashes and night sweats and not potentially um, cause undue side effects like some of those supplements can cause irritation to your liver and things like that. So, so one other thing you mentioned in one of your articles was about weight loss and hot flashes, that if you yeah. lose weight, you, you might have fewer hot flashes. True? It, yes. There uh, was one particular study that found that in an intervention where women um, lost weight, that they had less um, hot flashes. And I think what's really interesting about that study is they found that women knowing that losing weight may reduce their hot flashes motivated them more to lose weight. So um, at a time of life when women start to experience more risk of heart attack, dementia, kind of in that midlife period, doing things that are healthy like exercise and weight loss are so important. And thankfully, we're seeing that it can help with menopause symptoms too. All right. Tell us about Menopro, the app. Oh, yeah. Menopro is uh, developed um, in part by the North American Menopause Society, uh, which is a a great society that kind of oversees a lot of the research and guidelines for menopause treatment. Um, And they've developed an app where you can put in your symptoms and your history, um, and clinicians use it to guide therapy, whether or not it's safe to use hormones or not. But there's plenty of uh, patient materials where you can pull up information about like what are hormones, why are people concerned about them, or why are they good, um, that type of information. Because what a lot of women experience is if you Google hormones, there's a lot of stuff out there that's just misleading and maybe not truthful. So this app and any materials from the North American Menopause Society or really from the Mayo website would be helpful at getting some information. All right, it's Menopro, M-E-N-O-P-R-O, correct? Correct. Yep, that's it. All right, menopause, a normal part of life. The majority of women do experience symptoms, up 75% or so, hot flashes, night sweats. Do they need to be treated? Our guest says absolutely yes. And multiple options for treatment. 
Our thanks to Dr. Jewel Kling of the Division of Women's Health at Mayo Clinic's Arizona campus. Dr. Kling, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.